You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dunnis, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, we survived the Pride FC drinking game challenge, but I'm going to say just barely. Yeah, I'm... Especially interested in how you did because you took a lot of precautions. You were really thinking about the next day, which is how you know that you're, you've matured into an adult. I mean, I'm almost, up, I'm almost a 40 year old man over here. You showed up with a huge gallon jug of water. Yep. You also had some weird, like, hango, anti hangover vial that looked kind of like the antidote that Indiana Jones gets in the beginning of Temple of Doom. Morning recovery. So, how did you recover in the morning? You know what? It wasn't too bad. And, uh, People made fun of my gallon jug of water, but you know what? When I was up at 6.30 in the morning the next day, hanging out with three screaming children, I was glad that I had drank all that water the day before. So you weren't hungover? Is that what you're saying? I didn't feel 100%, but uh, I managed to have a full day and attended a a birthday party in the evening time. So uh, I was actually pleased with uh, how my body responded, let's say. Nice. So you want to do it again this weekend? Nope. But you, uh, you got it all figured out. In fact, Ben, I've been thinking about this. Okay. I feel like episode 297 of the Co-Main Event Podcast is a good time for me to announce my retirement from organized podcast-related drinking competition slash challenges. Well, this will never stick. And I feel like I'm going out on top, to be honest with you. This is just a classic MMA retirement. You're going to be back out again in, in three weeks. The Pride FC drinking game challenge went off without a hitch. It got rave reviews. People seem to enjoy it. Somehow. Who knows why, but they were into it. Uh, I managed to have a full day the next day. If I was going to walk away, it should be on top. And it should be now. It should be right now. See, here's where in classic MMA fashion you throw in, you would only consider coming back for the right offer. Something huge. It would have to be something huge. Yeah. Have to be something that really interested you. As I believe Stone Cold Steve Austin once said, when it takes Chad Dundas too long to fall down and too long to stand up, it's time to walk away. Let someone else come in and do this thing. <laughs> who's who's going to come in and do this Nobody. Thing? You're just on your own. Well... That's a different kind of stream. It's just me sitting on my couch, uh, drinking beers, yelling at the TV. Sad. That's a sadder kind of stream. Sadder, yes. You know who saved the Pride FC drinking game challenge? Who? Sarah Aswell, your wife. Yes. Just when things were getting slurry, <laughs> she rolls downstairs to watch Fedor Emelianenko versus Mirko Krokop uh, with us. And she, she brought a real life. And let's say a uh, soberness yeah. that the rest of the broadcast was lacking at that point. It's like calling for a relief pitcher. She came in there fresh, not with a bunch of heavy micro brews coursing through her veins like we had. Yeah, that that was a big help. But uh, I got some plans. I got some plans for for some future events we're gonna do. Thing you got things on the cooking up? Yeah, for the for the Patreon patrons. That's right. Well, I'm good. We got to keep it rolling, right? We got to keep the people happy. We do. You want to know how many patrons we're up to right now? Uh, last time I looked, we were we were getting close to 600, which again. 
rocketed past 600. We're past 600? 612 is where we're sitting right now. That's mind-boggling. I know. Have you noticed that every other MMA podcast now wants to have a Patreon? I have not noticed this that. This week, a couple other podcasts went ahead and they were like, oh, we got a Patreon now. Glad we make it look huh. so easy. I wonder what happened that would have encouraged them to start their own Patreon. Well, best of luck to them and their future drinking games. But uh, I'm just going to tell everybody, don't worry too much about Chad Dundas's supposed retirement. Retired. Just yet. Walking away on top. Feeling maybe. good about it. Time to start the next chapter of my life. I'm thinking maybe <laughs> uh, real estate. Maybe become a real estate agent. Yeah. I look at you. Day- I think real estate agent. Day trader. Uh huh. Maybe start trading stocks online. Yeah, that's something. Maybe you open my own gym. How to do? Maybe open my own gym. Yeah. Well, hey, if there's one thing I think after real estate agent. When I look at you, it's gym owner. Gym owner. Uh Ben. Another thing. Speaking of stuff that we're gonna do that everyone else will probably copy in the weeks to come. We're putting on a wrestling show. Yes, we here are in Missoula, Montana. Defy Wrestling from Seattle, one of the top independent wrestling organizations in the Northwest, is going to come out here to Missoula, which I believe is the first time they have traveled outside of the state of Washington. Maybe they've gone up to Portland, but this is far and away their longest trek to date. They're coming to Missoula on Friday, May the 4th, over at the Mask Studios, which is conveniently located just pretty close to my house. Yeah. I'll be able to just ride my bike over there or whatever. You don't have a bike. Uh to put on what I believe will be the greatest independent professional wrestling show that this town has ever seen as a lifelong resident. We got, we got Matt Riddle, former UFC fighter, arguably the top independent wrestler in the nation right now. He's going to be taking on Kalispell native Flip Gordon, Kalispell Montana native, who's also never wrestled in his home state before. So Friday, May, May the 4th is going to be a hot time here in the Garden City. That's right. And for anybody listening to the sound of our voices right now, if you are just reasonably close to Missoula, Montana, you should think seriously about coming to this thing and partying with us because it is going to be a good time. So Nigel's going to be there. Both of your co-main event podcast hosts are going to be there along with many of our friends and the assorted rabble of Missoula, Montana. My dad's going. It's going to be a great time. If you, if you can just, if you're within like a day's drive or even like, you know, a, a not terribly expensive flight, May is a fine time to be in Missoula, Montana. You should come on out here, enjoy some good old fashioned pro wrestling with us. I heard you were going to buy a beer for any co-main event podcast fan that shows their face at this thing. Is that true? You made that up. You just said that and then expected me to abide by it. But you know what? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll do go. that. That's a binding promise. That's right. Recorded on audio for the rest of time. All you have to do is walk up to me at the Pro Wrestling Show, tell me that you're a fan of the Co-Main Event Podcast, Karate Chop Chad Dundas in the neck, and you will receive well, on. one wait, wait, domestic wait, wait, beer. Wait, back up. What was the middle part there? The Is to tell me that you're a fan? Okay, I wasn't paying attention, so seems good to me. Yeah. We're good to go. Uh, we got hats out in the mail if you won the first week of the Breakfast of Champion Pride FC uh, Drinking Game Trivia Challenge. That's a, just a mouthful. Your hats are in the mail. They're on the way. They'll probably get there if you live in the continental United States uh, this week, if you're overseas. We can't speak to that. That's out of our hands. Yeah. As soon as they leave the United States. Take a steamship to take a hat over there there to Ireland. Now, if you won this last week, we'll be sending out your hats this week, so they'll arrive real soon. And Friday, the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, one more chance for the co-main event universe to win themselves some pretty awesome Pride FC hats. Because that's just how many goddamn Pride hats we have on our hands. One more week's worth. Yeah. Uh, We got music again this week from our guy, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear for him, you can check out more over at 
Twitter at the Fifth Element, Facebook.com slash the Fifth Element, or on SoundCloud.com slash the Fifth Element Official. That is the word the with an A. As always, if you enjoy the co-main event podcast, you can do us a serious solid by rating, reviewing, or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever platform you listen to the show on. That stuff really does help us out. So if you've got a few minutes, lend us a hand and write us a review. Ben, on my notes, it says in all caps, plug the Patreon. But I feel like we already did that. We did do that. I did it at, Still, the, at the top of the show. Patreon.com slash co-main event. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, you know how sometimes Steppenwolf will come play at the county fair? Except it's really just one original member of Steppenwolf and then like five 20-year-old studio musicians who are all just there to get a paycheck. And it's real weird, but if you drink enough beers, it's still kind of cool when they play Born to be Wild. Maybe that's sort of what UFC London will be like on Saturday night. And in round number two, speaking of people who fought at Pride Final Conflict 2005, Crow Cop is in Bellator. Guess he's lucky nobody was around to crow police his doping suspension. You see what I did there? I hate the look on your face how pleased you are right now. Crow police his doping suspension? Move on. Round number three, Nick Newell is back. He's 14-1, and one, and he says he deserves a shot in the UFC. Unfortunately... He's only got one hand, which would be disqualifying if not for people routinely fighting in MMA with one eye, one pectoral muscle, one working ACL, one testicle, nine toes, and no goddamn sense at all. So what's the argument here? Nine toes? Who is that? Rulon Gardner, man. Oh, yeah. Okay. We just talked about this. Yeah. The Pride FC drinking game challenge. Just completely wiped everything from that night from my memory. All that bless are you fucking kidding me, Master Tweet Theater, and just saying stuff, but first like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Don Ames. Yeah, let's see who that is. He writes, You did the damn thing and set your livers back decades for the good of the shit-eating wild man CME patrons. But in watching the amazing Pride event, did you take anything away from the glory days of MMA that could slash should be brought back into the sport to begin a renaissance of sorts? Maybe rekindle a few fires that had gone out in the modern era? Or should the past be left in the face-stomping, seriously risky, and downright dangerous past? Don Ames appears to be a real person. Follows me on Twitter. Nice! Yeah. Thanks for the email, Don Ames. All the way from Kitchener, Ontario. You know what? Watching Pride Final Conflict 2005 was A, a lot of fun. B, I mean, that's just a good time to watch those old MMA events. Uh, no pressure. None of the many pitfalls of the modern broadcast. Uh, like, no ads for the latest uh, video game slash movie with Vin Diesel or The Rock in them. The tires. No, just hastily plugged ads for tires. I will say this. If it has been a while since you have consumed overseas MMA, particularly overseas MMA of the mid-2000s, the first time you see somebody get stomped in their face, it is sort of a, ah! moment yes you forget about that yeah that's brutal and there's some there's some violence happening there well and i think sir nigel said this and i believe he said it maybe before we actually started the broadcast but when you get so used to the unified rules the first time you go back and you watch an event where people are just being casually soccer kicked and stomped in the head it seems like a war crime you're just like whoa whoa nobody's gonna do anything about that that seems like somebody's really gonna get seriously hurt out here but as far as 
did we see anything in there that should be brought back into the sport? It's really easy, I guess, to go back and kind of pick one event out of the year and say, yeah, okay, this stacked card where Fedor fought fucking Krokop and a the four-man finale of the Grand Prix all happened, plus weird shit like Tank Abbott versus Yoshida. Uh, yeah, okay, that one's going to feel a little more special than like a UFC fight night on Fight Pass from London or something. So it's not necessarily a fair comparison. But one thing that you did see there is it's not like that was the third event Pride had run that month. No, right, right. That is, there's definitely a connection there between the kind of like spectacle and huge event feeling that you can create there and how many shows you have to run, period. And I think one of the things that really you reminded of, not only in just the live event presentation, but just the feel of that kind of event, it kind of reminded me that the UFC, it seems these days, has tended more toward the pro wrestling model of like, well, you want to have a weekly show, basically. You want to you want to make sure that everybody knows Saturday night on Fox Sports 1, you're going to be there or you're going to be on pay-per-view. And you can do that in pro wrestling because you can just have, when you have a hot pro wrestler, you have these hot stars, they can just show up every week. They can work every week. They can work several times a week. It's fine. And you can't really do that in MMA. Like there's going to be huge differences in the quality of the content that you're putting out there. And if you were just setting it up according to the calendar and like, hey, we're just going to churn out this content regardless of who we got – then yeah, there's going to feel like a real difference. And the thing that this kind of reminded me of is that MMA is at its best when it is a damn spectacle, when it is a huge show. Like we, I think in the past, have made the mistake of thinking about it too much through the lens of just regular sports stuff. And it's not. Like it's a different kind of thing. And when it's not treated that way, then it's easy for it to just feel like all a little bit too routine. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying. Spectacle-wise, I would augment that statement a little bit just to say I think that MMA is at its best when it feels special. And so when you watch Final Conflict 2005, for example, it feels special. Again, because as you said, we weren't dealing with the glut of programming that we have today. So it's not like you were going to watch Pride Final Conflict 2005 and then uh, seven days later roll into UFC Fight Night 127 live and free on FS1 from Buffalo, New York. You know, right. uh, so it did, in fact, feel special. And uh, th- th- that I-, I don't think you can underestimate how much that that sort of like uh, increases the stakes and the feeling of anticipation and the overall funness of watching the event. I will also say, and maybe this is not quite fair because we watched the DVD, the people at home watched the Fight Pass streaming version. So, A, you're dealing with pay-per-view pacing here. And B, you probably got some edits happening in the... Uh, in the DVD and, and 2018 streaming version, but seven fights. We watched seven fights on this right. thing in roughly two and a half hours. Yeah. Felt longer for you and I. Especially when a yellow card would come out. When you're chugging your beer every time there's a yellow card, it feels a lot longer. But at the same time, that's unheard of in today's mixed martial arts, uh, you know, milieu. These days, we get six fights on a UFC card, and it feel like feels like you sit there your whole life. Six fights on a main card, you mean? You're right. watching the whole thing. You're sitting there for like six hours, and yeah, two and a half hours ought to be what you should shoot for, I would think, with your live sporting event. That that seems like if you're trying to get me to watch the whole thing, that would be a more reasonable goal. And if you're asking like why the UFC doesn't do that, like one would be just to create hours and hours of content, which is one of the things that, you know, you're filling out your own digital library. It's a thing that you have to offer to future broadcast partners. Uh, but also the UFC has so many fighters under contract 
that you have to have these huge fight cards in a way to just to be able to off, offer people enough fights that you're not in breach of contract. And as for why they have so many fighters on contract, I mean, part of it is to keep them probably away from other uh, fight promotions. But one thing I think we ought to mention is that, uh, and maybe we we glossed over too much. I mean, we made some jokes about it while we were watching the Pride and doing the drinking game challenge, but a um, lot of... A lot of drugs of all varieties probably coursing through the Final Conflict 2005 event. Now, we have a much cleaner sport now. It's easier to go back and kind of enjoy the nostalgia of it and just kind of turn your brain off and not really think too much about some of the the extracurriculars that were allowing these fights to happen. Like we said, nobody pulled out of that tournament. That tournament, they said it, they went ahead, they did it, and everything went according to plan. Maybe you don't do that if you have USADA. I'm also going to stick by my uh, my belief that the fighting is better now in 2018. Oh, yeah. Because you think about, we watched Crow uh, Cop versus Fedor on this thing. At the time, probably the two best heavyweights, maybe the two best pound-for-pound uh, pound fighters in the world back in the day in 2005, for a long time was regarded as perhaps the greatest mixed martial arts fight. Uh, and now you watch it in retrospect, and it's a good fight. And when you're trying to avoid the yellow cards... Uh, action packed. I believe there still was a yellow card. To its point. credit, there was a bit only one, which is pretty good for how <laughs> things were going for us. Uh, it seems kind of unremarkable in retrospect, just like as a fight. You know, you wouldn't watch it now and be like, oh my God, you gotta set your alarm clock to get up in the middle of the night and watch the rebroadcast of Crow Cop versus Fedor. Like, it seemed to me like you could get that fight on any, on any card in today's, uh, mixed martial arts when at the time it was like, regarded as the two best, two very, very skilled guys having the kind of fight that you don't see all the time. Yeah, good point. Let me run down the list of guys that were in the Pride 2005 Middleweight Grand Prix before we move on, because we only watched Pride Final Conflict, and while the exposition of how we got from the first round to the final round on the DVD was, let's say, extensive, (laughs) we didn't watch Total Elimination, which was the first round, so I'm just going to say the names. I won't say all of them, but these are the notable guys who are in just this tournament. Kazushi Sakuraba, Ricardo Arona, Dean Lister, Nakamura, Kevin Randleman, Vanderlei Silva, Hidohiko Yoshida, Alistair Overeem, Vitor Belfort, Igor Vavchanchin, Yuki Kondo, uh, Rogerio Nogira, Dan Henderson, Shogun Hua, and Rampage Jackson. That was the lineup. Not bad. That's fucking incredible. That's not bad at all. Next question this week comes to us from Rob L. He writes, maybe you can shed some light on the struggles of covering this sport when this sport uh, is at its least interesting. Without marquee names fighting much, if at all, anymore, and without major developments in the sport itself, like USADA implementation and the sale of the UFC, work has to be pretty thin for MMA journalists. Can you talk about any struggles going on for guys who make a living writing about this sport at a time when the sport seems to be the least interesting in recent memory? Well, that's interesting. But the issue is not so much that, like, it's impossible or difficult for us to come up with stuff to write about or talk about, is we can always do that. And that's kind of what we're here for. We can always come up with content. And, you know, sometimes it might be you're reaching a little more because there's just not much going on. The real issue, how this really affects the MMA media industry, is just that if interest in the UFC and in MMA in general starts to decline, then, you know, Hits on those websites start to decline, and those websites start cutting back. 
And that's just what, you know, the media industry in that area just kind of contracts. And that's what is always going to happen in any situation like that. And so then you start to see there's just less work to go around, less people uh, have either jobs at all or full-time jobs, or they have to start uh, splitting their time with other things. And you just see the quality of coverage just kind of decline. So that's, I think, how it actually affects the MMA media industry. It's a weird situation right now because there's almost more to write about than there ever has been just because of the UFC schedule and Bellator also happening and Ryzen also happening uh, and Russian Mixed Martial Arts Federation's running events 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It's got to be one right now, right? Whenever you need one, you just turn it on and there's a, a, a gif of a guy getting kicked in his head. Somewhere in Dagestan. Constantly just happening. Uh, but there's... But none of it moves the needle, so to speak, in terms of like reader engagement. So like, man, you could write a million stories covering the UFC week in and week out because they're doing 13 fights a week every single week. That would keep you busy if you were just out there covering the sport uh, in a relentless kind of way. But at the same time, like very few of those stories are going to make an impact with your readership because you've got this weird thing happening where – uh You've drastically increased your your menu of live events, and yet the actual commodities that people are interested in watching has has not increased in kind. So you've got a lot of like filler events. You've got a lot of uh, people who are on the rise right now, but but whose star has not reached you know ascended to the point where a lot of the casual MMA fans or the mainstream audience is interested in, in reading about them. Uh, so the sport in and of itself is at a, in a really strange situation right now where you're just kind of hoping that uh, that some of these younger fighters who seem like they are going to be the new normal for the UFC are going to like turn into people that the audience wants to watch because it's more and more, as we get further into 2018, it's starting to seem more and more like uh, the standard that you are going to have is main events between you know, Josh Emmett and uh, Jeremy Stevens. So you hope that some of those, some of these people turn into like bona fide, at least inside the MMA bubble, uh, stars, which is sort of the, the whole crux of, of what's happening right now. You just hope that, you know, that WME IMG can make, can take some of these new faces, uh, and turn them into the like John Joneses of the future, so to speak. Which should be the whole job, right? I mean, that's, that's what you're there for as the promoter. You would think. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Ross in Ohio. He says, after listening to last week's episode, I think I have a solution to eliminate fouls, or at least mostly. Part one, every foul gets a one-point deduction, no exceptions. Part two, if a fighter was docked one or more points for fouls, they become ineligible for bonuses of any kind related to that bout and forfeit their win purse. If you have to use questionable tactics to win, you get paid like it. Thoughts? Wow, that's that's severe forfeiting your win bonus i mean on its face it's not a bad idea right if you want to follow the logic of of if you want to make actual change you hit him in the pocketbook sure at the same time i feel like implementing this gets you into a lot of shall we say workplace issues yeah where uh you know if you are a mixed martial arts fighter this probably is not going to hit your ear too kindly no well and it's tough because if you're out there trying to throw inside leg kicks and there's always a potential that one slips up high or the person moves as you're trying to kick them. You kick them in the groin or it just barely gets them in the groin. And you think guys argue back and forth now about whether I really got you in the groin or whether I really got you in the eye or whether you're faking it trying to buy yourself a, a little bit of time. Wait until it means some money out of your pocket. Then you'll see people really get heated about that. But I, I, 
I do like the idea of taking a point away as soon as there's a foul, especially for the like we talked before about the more intentional fouls, like grabbing the fence, which you just can't really do accidentally. Uh, I think that they're like as far as standardizing. You break a rule, here's what's happening. I think that that's a good idea. Just because right now, one of the things that makes Dundasso such a, uh, you know. Fearsome. You can go ahead and say fearsome. <laughs> formidable. Formidable. Um, Dominant would be another word that I would probably in the okay. UFC is because there's just no telling exactly what's going to happen. And usually what's going to happen is nothing. I will say that as as like substantive ideas for change goes, I think this is a good one from Ross from Ohio. Uh, it might be as good as any substantive I've, idea I've heard about how to enforce rules and what penalties should be. And at the same time, seems totally unworkable, which is just like an indication of how hard it is to make a good rule in any sport, but specifically in this one, we always talk about this. We all agree that changes should be made. And then you start talking about how you actually make the changes and it becomes evident really quickly that uh, it's more difficult than you think it's going to be. And I think that that's one of the big reasons why we still are in this weird place in mixed martial arts where it seems like the rules are just often not enforced because, you know, even if it's just deducting a point and if that's the best case scenario that we have for how to enforce these rules, that in and of itself just changes the face of a lot of this competition. And you have to ask yourself, like, if we did implement that and suddenly a lot of guys were losing fights, you know, based on a groin kick or an eye poke or you were having a lot more fights ending in draws, we look back on it and, be, and wonder to ourselves, is this better? Yeah. Next question this week. Well, this is actually, I'm going to read two of these because they are both uh, connected and then there's something else about them which uh, connects them also. This first one, from Christian Bentiki. 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 Lead place for the Crystal Palace, our guys. Yeah, former, formerly, I think he just left. No, no. That's what I saw on the internet. I'm not up on the news. Anyway, he writes, All this recent talk about Michael Bisping and Luke Rockhold completing the trilogy doesn't make sense to you guys. I mean, the Count did not want his last fight to be against anyone that would bring the worst in him, making all the fans remember what a prick he can be. Side note, I will always remember the Count as a good fighter, but poor sportsmanship, no matter who he fights last. But now that Luke got steamrolled by the Cuban muscle crisis, doesn't it make sense to have those two fight one last time because all the pre-fight hype and antics are going to be at an all-time high, which is what the UFC loves? Hashtag would watch. Next question from Romelu Lukaku. Lukaku. Blue plays for Manchester United. Both those uh, footballers are also Belgian, if I'm not mistaken. What's going on here? Uh, something. Something's happening. This question. So Luke Rockhold might be facing Alexander Gustafson at light heavyweight. How do you see that going? I got one. Hashtag would watch. Are we reading two questions by the same author here? I mean, you can draw your own conclusions. There's, there's some... If you want to put together a forensic timeline about what has occurred here, I think it can lead you to some reasonable inferences. I'm Right now, I'm putting up the, the printouts of the emails, and I'm connecting them with different colored yarn. Mm -hmm. Red strings. Yeah. Here in the, in the war room. <laughs> yes, exactly. What the, what's going on with Luke Rockhold specifically right now, Ben, but also this idea of him and Michael Bisping fighting again. It was telling to me that on the heels of this most recent loss to Yoel Romero, Luke Rockhold comes out and says he wants to fight Michael Bisping again at light heavyweight. Because that's just like, okay, you're fighting a guy that we all expected you to beat the first two times anyway, and you want a natural middleweight who is much smaller than you to meet you up at 205 pounds? Like... It had a, a whiff of desperation to it. A and yet, waft. There somehow, was a waft of desperation. 
Luke Rockhold loses that fight against the Cuban Muscle Crisis and comes out with at least a couple options that people are interested in talking about, at least. It's considering good It's good work if you can get it. It's not bad. But didn't we mention, when we talked about the possibility of Luke Rockhold moving up to 205 pounds a week or two ago on the show, didn't we specifically mention Alexander Gustafson? And we were like, that seems like a nightmare matchup for somebody like Luke Rockhold. And now he's telling Alexander Gustafson that he's coming for that ass. I mean... <laughs> you could word it differently. You like, could. you could do it differently. You, you could. You know, in a perfect world, I suppose you could word it differently. Um, as far as the which one, like, would I watch, I'm conflicted on the Michael Bisping, Luke Rockhold trilogy idea because, on one hand, sure, that makes a certain kind of sense. I also feel like if Michael Bisping is going to sit there and try to pick, like, the perfect fight, I don't think that we're going to end up with what we want necessarily out of it as fans. I think that Michael Bisping saying, I, I don't want to go up against somebody where it's going to get me all heated and have me end my career that way. I mean, in a sense, that would be the most fitting way for him to end his career. That's one of the things that we'll remember him for. And one of the things that, in fact, made him as popular or at least as like uh, watchable a fighter is his ability to turn kind of anything into a feud. And I also don't know how many people – like once you take all the people out of the equation that Michael Bisping will not get heated against, who are you left with? No, but there's nobody out there. It's kind of boring possibilities once, once you finally get around to it. Like so none maybe? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Pope? I, and this one at least it feels like there would be some stakes. Like you're settling this – you know, you each got one. Best of three, here we go. Something is going to be decided, even if it's ultimately you know, meaningless as far as like where your, your career is going since you're retiring afterwards. So I would watch that one over Luke Rockhold versus Alexander Gustafson because I feel like Rockhold Gus is just us all showing up so that we can watch Luke Rockhold get reminded why this is a bad idea. Maybe Michael Bisping against a cute puppy? I would like to see Michael Bisping try to get heated at a at a cute puppy. What kind of puppy? During the lead up to their, I don't know, like a maybe a large breed, but it's like still a puppy, but it's got the big fuzzy paws, soulful eyes. Just gonna <laughs> soulful eyes. Run out there and just lick Michael Bisping right on his ankles. Okay. I'd like to see him try to work a feud with that puppy. Yeah, I bet he could do it. Ben, I've been wrong about this before, but I'm just gonna say this again. If I were Michael Bisping. And I had skated out of that second Luke Rockhold fight with the middleweight title around my waist and a first round knockout against a guy that I frankly had no business beating in that fight. I would put the sunglasses on, climb in the Bugatti and drive off into the sunset, my guy. I would, there, you would have a better chance of seeing Jesus Christ himself come back from the dead than seeing me, Michael Bisping, climb in the cage with Luke Rockhold again. But if you were Michael Bisping, would you fight again at all? At this point? Well, see, that's why I said I've been wrong about this stuff before. Right? <laughs> I think about it differently than these guys. I mean, I'd be, in the, I'd be in the Bugatti with the sunglasses just anyway, if not fighting Michael, anybody. If you're Michael Bisping, beating Luke Rockhold to win the middleweight title is an Ocean's Eleven-esque heist for you. So then you do like three more of those? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes. And they all get shittier? Yes. Yeah. How about this, though? Even though we believe the young dinosaur was talking crazy about retirement. If I were Michael Bisping, I would be like, you know which one I want back? Vitor Belfort. Because not only is that a chance at redemption uh, against the former poster boy of the testosterone replacement era, but also, like, maybe a fight that you win. 
Yeah, but I think that was one that he did not like because of him getting – he knew he would get super pissed off. See, again, I'm talking about thinking, thinking about it differently than these guys, but why would Michael Bisping ever think that there would be a fighter in the UFC that he could be matched up against that wouldn't make him feel heated? I'm We've sure, never seen that before. I'm sure there's somebody out there, but they – just because of the kind of person he is, they would have to be super boring kind of to n- just not bring that out of him. And it also, at a certain point, when you put it off for so long and you're turning down all these interesting potential ideas, it begins to look like the longer this goes on, the more unsatisfying it's ultimately going to be. Because you're looking for like just the perfect opponent. And you already, you know how fighters will catch tons of shit for even the perception that they might be trying to pick and choose their fights. You get a little more leeway when it's like your retirement fight and you're, you want to go out on your own terms, but you don't get endless amounts of leeway. At a certain point, people are just going to be like, all right, hey, either pick somebody or shut up about it. Like we don't want to go through this constant, uh, you know, like you're watching suitors come through the door and, and picking them apart for every last detail. We're not on the bachelorette here, man. Pick somebody and fight them, or else don't. Maybe like a gangly yet lovable giraffe. Okay. That'd be hard to get mad at, wouldn't it? Are we doing that one at 205? Depends on what, how, how, what the giraffe can make. Yeah. I have no idea, no concept of Baby what giraffe? giraffe? We're talking about a baby giraffe? Maybe. Let's get on the internet and find out what, what weight a giraffe could make. Okay. And we'll get back to you. That's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the page that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. If you want to win one of these pride hats, frankly, you got to subscribe to the damn thing. Uh, and if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe, though I have been told a couple of times in the last few weeks, it's easy to unsubscribe and maybe not quite so easy to resubscribe later when you realize you made a terrible mistake. That's right. We're not just going to keep taking you back. I'm not your ex-girlfriend. <laughs> As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, UFC Fight Night 127 comes our way this weekend from the O2 Arena over there in jolly old England. Now, I'm kind of unclear on this, but we've run into this in the past. Are we supposed to say the O2 Arena or are we just supposed to say the O2? People, maybe they're different venues, but in the past we've gotten crosswise with the fans over there in the UK. Are you even supposed to say the the? Is it just O2 or O2 Arena? We're going to have to get someone. There's no way to know. No, I mean, not for us. No. A couple no. of Yanks over here trying to talk about London like we know something. Just get in the tube. Drive your lorry to the tube. There you go. From your flat. Now, this is perfect, though. I don't. There's no one could possibly take issue with this. Zoom right down to the O2. Uh-huh. Or, if you prefer, O2. Now, we're looking at a Fight Pass only event here. This is the FightPass.com? This is the Fight Pass. Oh, shit. All right, uh, well... Scratch it. Let's do something else for this round. <laughs> Beginning 
Uh, you will be pleased to know, I believe, the, the prelims begin at 11.45 a.m. in the One True Time Zone okay, on Saturday. Write that down so I don't miss it. I uh, Yeah, I know you will not want to miss Cajun Johnson versus Stevie Ray kicking off the broadcast. Uh, and then I'm looking at, looks like, uh, Nazrat Hakparast against TBD. Wait, we I still see. got a TBD on this At least thing? On, on Wikipedia. We'll, we'll have to go and check out what the actual UFC... Dot com version of the card looks like, but you know why I'm all about those Saturday afternoon fight events. Like, man, 11.45? That is perfect. This is not like you have to rush through your morning routine. You know, you can still get all your important Saturday morning stuff out of the way. You settle in. You watch some fights. The whole thing is going to be over with by early evening, just in time to, to catch a, a nutritious dinner. Yes. Yes, please. All right, let's go ahead and talk about the main event here. You have Fabricio Verdum against Alexander Volkov. Uh, this past weekend, Ben, we noted that Fabricio Verdum showed up at Pride Final Conflict 2005. First of all, looking like a high school senior, looking like he was about 10 years old. Uh, wait, 10 years old is about how old you are when you're a high school senior, right? Sure. Uh, and By the he, way, Alex Reyes versus Hasnas Rat Hakprost. So that was the TBD? Yeah. One of those two guys? Okay. Well, those I mean, two guys, yes. Yeah, I was not listening to you, so I don't know. Uh, Fabricio Verdum gets billed at Pride Final Conflict 2005 as Mirko Krokop's jiu-jitsu coach. That's right. That's how he's known. So when you think about it, he's done sort of well for himself now. He's about to main event this UFC Fight Pass event against Alexander Volkov. Alexander Volkov uh, about to try to advance his UFC record to 4-0. and He's beat Timothy Johnson, Roy Nelson, and Stefan Struve so far, so... uh no pushovers for Alexander Volkov. Now he comes in here against Fab Verdum. Uh, what do you think about this matchup? This seems like the kind of fight you could have put somewhere else, but maybe not the... I mean, is this is this a workable main event? I would imagine the fans over there in London say no, but uh, as a heavyweight con contest, is this a workable main event for you? Well, it's not blowing anybody's hair back, as Chad Dundas might say. Just in terms of name value, I mean, it is interesting. Alexander Volkov overall has got himself a five-fight winning streak. Going before he uh, got into the UFC, he knocked out Attila Vey uh, over there in the M1 Challenge. So, and also, you look at his recent fights, and this is a snapshot of what it is to be a heavyweight in MMA in the year 2018. Because of how, how a guy can have a loss, a decision loss to Czech Congo. Um, barely skate by a guy like Tim Johnson with a split decision win, but then have a unanimous decision win over Roy Nelson and a TKO over Stefan Struve, and boom, now you're in a main event against Fabricio Verdum. And, you know, the best thing you can say here is, hey, former UFC heavyweight champion Fabricio Verdum, going to main event this. He's just kind of perpetually hanging out in this conversation about who might end up in another heavyweight title fight once we figure out what we're doing after the whole uh, Stipe Miocic, Daniel Cormier super fight there. So, yeah, you very easily could see Fabricio Verdum go out here, win a fight, and then end up fighting for the UFC heavyweight strap again in his very next fight. Is that enough to really get you going? I think you're buying tickets to this one if you're if you are buying them at all because it's the UFC coming to town and that's kind of what you're banking on, especially with the undercard. Just like we're just going to pepper it with local guys and hope that that's enough. Fitting for a Saturday afternoon where maybe you don't have other plans is what you're saying. Well, if you're watching it here, it's a Saturday afternoon right. over there at right. at O2, the O2 Arena. O2, maybe not. 
Fabrizio Verdum, as you mentioned, is in kind of a perennially weird place in the heavyweight division. He obviously lost his title to Stipe Miocic back at UFC 198 and lost to Alistair Overeem via majority decision at UFC 213. Since then, he's got back-to-back wins. He beat late replacement Walt Harris at UFC 216, and then uh, he had that fight with Marcin Tybura, which uh, went down in November of last year. That was a a good fight, and I, I think we walked away from it Maybe a little bit impressed with Marcin Tybura for standing up with um, Fabricio Verdum for five full rounds, although you know winning a, or losing a clear-cut unanimous decision to Fab Verdum. The guy's a few months away from t- turning 41 years old, but at the same time, like you said, he is always circling that top contender status uh, in the UFC heavyweight division. Well, meanwhile, like trying to keep himself from saying a bunch of dumb stuff outside the cage. Uh, at what point do we decide? We've probably seen the best for Fabri- from Fabricio Verdum, or does his world-class jiu-jitsu skills and kind of like all-around wiliness at this point just make him a constant threat? Like, is it, I feel like if you told me we wake up six months from now and Fabricio Verdum is the UFC heavyweight champion, I would be surprised, but not that surprised. Yeah, well, it's two things, really. It's Fabricio Verdum seems to keep surprising you with his ability to stay relevant and to, in fact, round out his game as he gets older and older. And then also, just the nature of the heavyweight division is such that you don't have to string together two years of peerless performances to even get your shot, like you do if you're at lightweight or something. You you know you win a couple fights and then the, and the right opportunity falls into your lap. The phone rings and you happen to be there to answer it. You could be fighting for the title and then. As we always say with the heavyweight title contest, you land one good punch at the right moment and you're going home with the gold around your waist. So, yeah, I would not be out of the realm of possibility to see Fabricio Verdum get another run with the UFC title. At the same time, I think one of the things that makes Fabricio Verdum fun to watch also makes him particularly susceptible to the ups and downs and the whims of the heavyweight division is Fabricio Verdum will go out there and take some damn chances. And he will sometimes get himself in trouble that way. Like, you know, as much as I like to see him begin around by just sprinting across the cage and doing a, a flying jump ninja shit kick right at your head. Also, he's going to chase Stipe around until he gets clocked right in the face and get knocked out, which, you know, at heavyweight, it's already kind of a, a coin flip at times. You make it even more so when you fight like that. But at the same, that does make him a lot of, uh, does get him into a lot of interesting fights. You know, who's got, an important fight on this card. Who's that? The Fire Kid. Tom Dukenwa. Tom Dukenwa came into the UFC with all the hype. Ben at Bantamweight, men's Bantamweight, won his debut against Patrick Williams in April of last year and then lost the split decision at UFC 216 to Cody Staman. Stamen? 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 Cody Stamen? There you go. So if you're the Fire Kid, Tom Dukenwa, no way, uh, you got to win this one, right? to sort of like preserve your status as as uh as a hot contender at, at bantamweight and i would say in addendum to that fighting Terrian Ware. that's the right guy who does not have a wikipedia page he doesn't have a wikipedia page he's fought like twice in the ufc right somebody needs to get on that but i think he is winless until he he uh fought sean o'malley and sean o'malley is i believe usa debut at the tough uh, finale back in december uh, but this does kind of make it seem a little bit right. Like maybe Tom Duganois is getting a little bit of a European Sage Northcut treatment. There you go. Because you go out there, uh, people are getting kind of excited about you. They're they're 
they put you in a fight where clearly you're the one everybody's paying attention to, and then Cody Stamen comes out there with the, the split decision win, the next one, so then they give you a guy who has lost two straight, has yet to win a fight in the UFC. It seems pretty clear what they're doing, like who they want to see come out on top of that one. And so that is definitely the fight you got to win. European Sage Northcutt kind of rolls off the tongue. Yeah. There. You like that? You might prefer that to Fire Kid. I mean, it's longer, obviously, but I'm not going to say it's unworkable. No. All right, Ben, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and do my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Just because it floated across my Twitter timeline a couple hours ago. Uh, and it's obviously Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Worth it, worthy uh, from Mike Bond of MMA Junkie, or as I like to call him, Mike Bone. Uh, I'm just going to read his tweet, and then I'll okay. read the, the, the quote. I asked Roy Nelson about Matt Mitrione's claim he was cheating during the third round of their tournament fight at Bellator 194. This was not the reply I was expecting to get. Red-cheeked emoji guy. Here's Roy Nelson's response to that question. Matt's a guy that's always calling the, that's the pot always calling the kettle black, Nelson told MMA Junkie. I think he's still upset because he's cheating on his wife and stuff. That's all I heard that whole week was him cheating on his wife. So I think he has a lot of guilt, and I think he's got to take his rage out somewhere. But there's no cheating on my end. I think he's just upset because in his heart, he f he didn't really feel like he won. He wasn't the best fighter that night. Are you fucking kidding me? Roy Nelson answers a question about <laughs> whether or not he was uh, digging his toes into the cage to get a little extra leverage on Matt Mitrione by talking about and alleging Matt Mitrione's marital infidelities. Fucking kidding me. Fucking kidding me. What the hell? I guess maybe is that a sign to everybody else like don't don't come at Roy Nelson? I yeah, maybe we're we're uh planting a flag in the sand here. Yeah, yikes. Well, Chad, this week my are you fucking kidding me? Uh I was reading this on MMA Junkie after an appearance by Pat Militich on MMA Junkie Radio. Uh and he started talking about Tim Sylvia and basically about being wrong about the potential that Tim Sylvia had uh, and how, you know, he is looking for fighters who have good athletic ability, uh, a good work ethic, and have a good kind of mind for the fight game, and you have to have a, a tough mind, and that he did not feel that Tim Sylvia was that guy because at first, quote, he cried after every practice. Then, uh, a later quote, uh, he says that several people, including... Uh, Matt Hughes, Jens Pulver, and Jeremy Horn told Pat Militich, you got to cut this guy loose. He's not ever going to be anything. And here's a quote from Pat Militich. I can't tell him to go home because he tried so hard. That's the one thing I care about is I would rather train somebody who could barely win any fights, but they give 110% every day in practice than train a world champion who's so gifted that it comes easy to him and he's lazy. I have no desire to work with someone that has no work ethic. I guess my are you fucking kidding me goes out to Pat Militia. We're kind of breaking my heart here by forcing me to picture Tim Sylvia, Big Tim, in there in the notoriously brutal Militich fighting systems practices, then sitting there and crying after every single one, and then becoming goddamn UFC heavyweight champion in a triumph over his own abilities, basically, that may never be possible ever again in the sport of mixed martial arts. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? You know, one time when I was at a UFC event as a fan before I became a uh, an MMA writer, they were doing one of those autograph things with Matt Hughes and, and Tim Sylvia when they were both champions. 
and they both were, were sitting there at the table with their belts on the table like they do. And I waited yeah. in line and I, I got their, both their autographs. And then they were going to go do like a photo shoot. They were getting called away by UFC PR to go do a photo shoot. Matt Hughes turns to Tim Sylvia and he goes, hey, Tim, we got to go take some pictures. Bring your belt so people know who you are. And I was like, God damn, Tim Sylvia is the heavyweight champion. And he's still just like the whipping boy of this, of this tandem. You should just pick Matt Hughes up like a toddler and just shake him. Anyway, that's going to do it for uh, round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Chad, we talked a little bit about this, but now let's dig deep into the subject of your boy, Mirko Krokop. Fresh off a strong but not victorious performance over Fedor Emelianenko at the Pride Final Conflict 2005. Okay, yeah. It does seem like that just happened last week. Yeah. Uh, now, after his kind of post-UFC, post-USADA exile in Japan, he's back in the big leagues. He signed with Bellator. He's going to debut for Bellator at Bellator 200. He's going to take on uh, Roy Nelson in a rematch over there in London. And... Immediately, you kind of had to wonder a little bit about this because, as you recall, Krokop, the first person to get suspended by USADA when the UFC signed an anti-doping agreement with them, admitted to taking human growth hormone, got a two-year suspension, and then less than a year later was fighting in Ryzen. And then, you know, fought, I believe has a four-fight winning streak going with Ryzen. And fought most recently just uh, New Year's Eve this past year. He sure did. And so now he's back in Bellator, and you you know, all right, Bellator does not have a deal with USADA. However, most state athletic commissions will go by uh, USADA suspensions. It's the entire reason why the California State Athletic Commission just had a hearing about John Jones when USADA caught him, that California did not catch him. Uh, the whole reason why we even went through that whole thing and did it was because state athletic commissions pay attention to what USADA does and, and will abide by those suspensions. But Krokop didn't serve his, and now he's going to kind of go consequence-free into Bellator, which raises some questions that both Krokop and Bellator seem really eager to just kind of shrug off. What do you make of this? Is it just enough time has passed? The heat has died down? They can they can get away with it? Do we just not expect Bellator to abide by any of that stuff? Uh, because i got to wonder... If you're not doing this one in London, where Bellator hires the Mohegan Tribe Athletic uh, Commission to oversee those in a kind of already legally questionable fashion, if you're in Bellator at the Forum in Inglewood in California, are you able to just slide in there with Mirko Krokop like, hey guys, hey, remember me? Nothing nothing weird here. Martial time's still on. Yeah, I mean, the, the notion that they're doing this event in London raises a lot of questions about uh, not only whether or not it would be feasible to do this in the States, but also sort of like, you know, what will the drug testing be like for all these guys rolling into England? Uh, and you're right. It's and it's it's a weird situation all around because basically the UFC and the U.S. anti-doping agency have a formal partnership. But above and beyond that, a lot of what we're relying on here to enforce these suspensions are sort of like almost like gentlemen's agreements that like if you get suspended by USADA, you know, the Nevada or New Jersey or Texas or anywhere in the United States won't let you fight. There's not like a legal, a legally binding precedent that says they can't let you fight, but it's just sort of we've all agreed that 
to honor those suspensions. And those suspensions go in the Association of Boxing Commission's database, and then, yeah, that's kind of how they work, is that they agree to honor each other's suspensions. At the same time, you've got a company like Bellator, which doesn't have a relationship uh, with USADA and is going to go overseas and do this event, and so is clearly bringing in Mirko Krokop for the you know the name appeal that he brings, have him rematch with Roy Nelson, uh, which is a nice fight for Bellator to be able to make, but are they sort of like skirting outside the rules? And, of course, Scott Coker comes out when when people start writing stories and asking questions about whether or not they are uh, skirting the rules here. Uh, and he claims that th- this is interesting timing for anyone to bring up Mirko Krokop's suspension uh, when the guy has fought a number of times over in Ry- Ryzen and, and, you know, in Japan and in Poland and, and all kinds of places without uh, any kind of real formal stink being made about him not serving the suspension. So I guess I would just flip it back to you, Ben. Like, does it seem like, is there any merit in what Scott Coker is saying here that like, if you, if we no. wanted to like make a big deal about Mirko Krokop, we should have done it two years ago. No, I'll explain why. And I wrote a thing about this earlier because Scott Coker brings up these questions and it's very easy to answer these questions because, uh, I saw this where he said, Hey, if, if, why didn't people go after him two years ago when he started fighting for Ryzen? Because that's kind of what we expect that Ryzen's going to do. The same way, like, why doesn't anybody ask Ryzen about drug testing? Man, because we know how they do over there. Like, Gabby Garcia is going to fight an old lady who she outweighs by 50 pounds. That's just going to happen. Baruto's going to roll in there away in 400 pounds and participating in, like, a tournament where you have to fight three times in three days. And that part of it is awesome. That part <laughs> of it is going to be awesome. Uh, Mirko Krokop is going to show up looking like he has rediscovered his old weightlifting regimen suddenly now that he's back fighting in Japan. He's doing the snatch a lot, I heard. Yeah, is that snatch, what it is? Snatch, cleans, uh, clean and jerk, mm-hmm. a lot of the Olympic lifts, the more explosive lifts. Yeah, I hear that makes a big... Is he doing kettlebells? Yep, a lot of kettlebell swings. Yeah, makes a huge difference. We all know what to expect from the kind of unregulated Wild West type uh, show that they run out there in Japan. And for Bell, for and Scott Coker knows that we that that's why nobody really made a big deal out of it. I mean, it raised some eyebrows, certainly, but we all could do the math on that right away and see exactly what was happening. And so it feels like he's kind of trying to say, like, hey, why should Bellator be held to a higher standard? Well, because you want to be a big player, right? Like, you want to be a serious MMA promotion. You want to have, like, at least the veneer of working with regulators. That's why you're even hiring, you know, a state uh, athletic commission to come out there and oversee your show in London. It's because you want to be thought of that way and because people are thinking of you that way. And honestly, Bellator has gotten a pass on a lot of the drug testing and anti-doping concerns over the last few years. Everybody pushes the UFC on it and pushed them so far the UFC was willing to spend the money and put up with all the many, many headaches that have followed since making the deal with USADA. And Bellator was able to just kind of fly under that radar and not worry about it too much. Every once in a while somebody asks about Bellator drug testing, but they never took near as much heat as the UFC took. They, people just did not expect them to lead the way in cleaning up the sport the way we expected it of the UFC. And now it feels like Bellator is kind of pushing that a little bit, or at least taking it for granted and saying like, oh, hey, why do you expect us to actually do anything about it? And one of the problems is that, like, if you, if your logic, and his logic was basically like, hey, we didn't think there'd be a problem because he was already fighting. And how can there be, if he's already fighting somewhere, then he must be able to fight for us too. But then imagine... uh, John Jones goes out there and gets – say USADA really throws the book at John Jones and say he gets like a four-year suspension. And then say John Jones turns around and tells the UFC, release me. Like 
you know, and it might even turn into an interesting legal conflict if he says to the UFC, like, hey, this is basically a contractual suspension. You can't hold me for four years and not let me make a living. Release me, and maybe the UFC doesn't want to get into that. So they release him. So maybe John Jones goes over there. Next thing you know, it's New Year's Eve. He's kicking a cup of noodles right in the head. Everybody's enjoying it. John Jones is having the time of his life over there. Does Bellator then turn right around and say, like, all right, well, clearly we can sign John Jones. He's fighting somewhere on planet Earth, so he must be able to fight for us. Uh, you get into a, a tricky situation if you're the athletic commissions, because if you say we honor USADA uh, testing, we will level levy penalties based on USADA testing, and then a guy fails a USADA test, and then as soon as he changes companies, you do you act like it just didn't happen? And then if you're Bellator, it's a end run for you to become the beneficiary of the UFC having a stronger anti-doping program than you do. So it sounds to me like you're saying you're not mad at Scott Coker, but maybe you're just really disappointed. Well, it seems like a little disingenuous to make these arguments. It does, like part. especially the one where he says, well, if Mirko Krokop's fighting in Japan, he must be able to fight for us. Seems like that, like in making that argument, inherent in that argument is sort of like, well, we, had, we didn't really think about it that much. Like, we just saw that he was fighting, and so we were like, oh, okay. Well. Yeah, and you conveniently brought him over to London, not to California, not somewhere else. You, you know, you, you brought him somewhere where the regulation situation is a little different. And I also just think that I understand how a lot of people, like, I think mentally do give Bellator that pass because, hey, it's the place where the old guys fight. It's not as serious, like, in our minds in the UFC. Like, it's... You know, Chael Sonnen, Tito Ortiz, Miracle Krokop, who cares if they're also on some vitamins, whatever they got to do to keep them going. Like, I think people get that kind of mentally in their minds. And I I think we kind of got to decide either we care about stuff like, like drug testing or having a clean sport or at least trying to have a clean sport. Either we care about it everywhere or we shouldn't care about it anywhere. Yeah. You, you can't just kind of pick and choose that way. That's interesting. Like, I think you might be right bringing up the idea that it's it's almost like an identity crisis situation looming for Bellator because – at some point, it will have to decide what kind of promotion it wants to be. Is it sort of like a mom and pop shop that we all give the benefit of the doubt because it puts on fun fights and we all think that it's kind of cute and funny and hilarious and it can go over in London and have Roy Nelson fight Mirko Krokop? Or does it like want to be taken seriously as, as one of the big dogs, at which point uh, it doesn't seem like it can skirt the rules or cut the corners that maybe it is doing to bring Mirko Krokop in, in this situation? And when it has to answer those questions, I don't exactly know, but I, I think that that is a, a legitimate line of inquiry. Well, and I think you get a, you get a little bit of a more slack with it with Mirko, I think, because so much time has passed, and it feels like, hey, don't we don't we want to have Mirko Krokop out here kicking people in the head and having some fun? Like we do, we do. We we will be a little bit more amenable to arguments that at least allow us to get Krokop in there because it gives us a result that we want. And if you can, if you give us a little bit of hazy logic to to get us there, maybe people won't get super pissed off. But it does create this thing of like, is this the new model? If you get busted by USADA in the UFC, do you just instantly try to get out of it so that you can go fight somewhere else so that Bellator can sign you right away? Like, does, is it just a, you know, get out of doping trouble free card? And I don't know. That's what we'll have to see. Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to do Master Tweet Theater. It's been a few weeks since we did that, so it'll be exciting to see what he has come up with. That starts right now.
What's that time again? We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. My accent has returned to full strength. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm sure everybody else is. Uh, how'd you fare after the uh, the Pride FC drinking challenge? You know, not well, sir. Okay. I, my spirits were high, but so too was the bacterial content of my body. Well, you know, I for one, I kind of laid odds that we'd never see you again. So this is, I won't say a pleasant surprise, but I'm surprised. Yes, I am horribly alive. And I assume you've brought us some tweets loosely organized around a theme. Indeed, sir, I have. The theme is Mask Off. Would you care to explain that further? Yes, tweets in which the tweeter in question drops the mask of civility or even basic human decency. I see. So just <laughs> we're kind of seeing man's inhumanity to man via Twitter. Indeed, sir. Also women's inhumanity to whatever. Okay. I look forward to this one. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. This episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by Jacobs and Lind Licensed Legal Practitioners, official lawyers of the class action suit against Frisky's Explode. <laughs> Did you or a member of your family suffer traumatic injury as a result of switching to Frisky's Explode? Did your cat see big gains but also increased incidence of sexual aggression, inappropriate urine volume, or uncontrollable relentless biting syndrome, sometimes called URB. Tanya Anderson of Wheeling, West Virginia purchased Frisky's Explode, and now her grandson has to wear a mask to school. Jacobs and Lind helped her win millions, and we can do the same for you. To join our class action lawsuit, call 1-800-FEAR-CAT. That's 1-800-F-E-A-R-C-A-T. Call now, or wait until it falls asleep. We've got some real storytelling elements yeah. happening now. It's, it's, got been an a, it's a narrative. Drama. It's a whole narrative. You know, the funny thing about that whole ad read is that uh, inappropriate urine volume, uh, that was actually the name of a band I was in in high school. Oh, very good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Descendants cover band, I would imagine. Yeah, shut down by the health department. <clears throat> they don't like rock and roll, sir. <laughs> yes, let us begin. Do we all remember the theme? Mask off? Mask off. Okay. Yes. Tweet the first. I've been lifting weights for 27 years, and all I have to show for it is cardboard joints and a bird chest. Oh, well, time to lift. Uh, Josh Barnett. Noted weightlifting enthusiast and yet owner of a not spectacular, visually speaking, physique. This is mask off? Mask off. Okay. Some honesty. They're hitting you with some guess, honesty yeah, about weightlifting. Yeah. Uh... 27 years. Josh Barnett is a good guess, although... He started lifting when he was like 12 or something. He's like late 30s right? now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Henzo Gracie. Not lifting any weights. Both fine guesses. At least one of them likely to lift. And both wrong. It is Forrest Griffin. Oh, come on, Forrest. Give yourself more credit. He didn't have a bird large, chest. Large man. Yeah. Forrest Griffin, actually a large man. And looked pretty good with his shirt off last time I saw him. It's his reach. His reach makes him look smaller, I think. Yeah. I think guys with short arms benefit from weightlifting. Also, who's going to guess Forrest Griffin? Nobody. Mask off, Chad. You guys are getting too good at this. I have to bring in some deep cuts. Um, tweet the second. This one will be a little easier. To know what it's all about, or to not know what it's all about. Is that not what it's all about? Whoa, this one's easier? Okay. Indeed, sir. I feel like I can narrow this one down to a few possible choices. I'm going to say that just feels like a Rich Franklin. 
I mean, yeah. And yet, though, I would question how it would be mask off because that would be really in character if it were Rich Franklin. Mask on. <laughs> the poet Philip Baroni, perchance. Okay. Both fine guesses, but both two in character. It is, in fact, Platinum Mike Perry. What? Revealing himself as a serious thinker. So you're saying that when, when Mike Perry takes the mask off, it's pseudo-deep. Yes, he only pretends to be a borderline racist insane person. He's actually a sort of Neoplatonist philosopher. Okay. Was this before or after all the, the breakup stuff with his girlfriend? Before. Ah. Many of you sent me lively breakup tweets from <laughs> Mike Perry, but I thought that might be too easy. Okay. Already I feel like we have not stuck to this theme at all. Mm, well, get ready for tweet the third then. This is in response to a fan who asks, how's the fake back injury? The tweeter responds, how is that fake big black dick your mom uses? <laughs> okay, I got this one, Chad. I'll let you go first. Yeah, no, this is obviously uh, Derek Lewis. It is Derek Lewis, the black beast. Derek Lewis, it is the black beast. How is this mask off? Well, it's just delightful, in my opinion. <laughs> He's not even playing with those who would accuse him of faking. No. No, you're gonna be you will rue the day that you tried to come up with Derek Lewis on Twitter. Also, a professional athlete can just quit doing professional athletics. He doesn't need to fake an injury as though he were a child <laughs> trying to get out of gym. That sounds like that might be lifted from personal experience, Sir Nigel. Indeed. As a child, I attended nary a gym class <laughs> due to my weak skeleton. <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. Let me talk to my haters. Blame my greatness on things you simply will never understand. Hard work. Passion. Suck one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a... Victory of inflection there on your part. See, this is, again, Chad, I keep telling you, every time we look at the monthly budget and you're like, why are we spending all this money on the theatric list? That's why, motherfucker. Yeah, okay, yeah. And it obviously is. that's John Jones. Yeah, it is. That's at Johnny Bones. <laughs> Indeed, John Bones Jones. Finally speaking frankly to his haters, he's been... He's been so nice to everyone for so long. And see, that one again, mask off, even though that's uh, that's kind of a... Right in the wheelhouse there for John Jones. That mask has been on the floor of his car collecting dust. <laughs> Tweet the fifth. I don't see gender. I only see nice tits. I got this okay. one too. Yeah, okay, go ahead. You don't want to take a guess first? I mean, is this number five? Yes. yes. Is that the poet Philip Baroni? It is not because it's Angela Hill. It is. Oh. It is Angela over Kill Hill. Delightful. One of the best follows on Twitter. Also possibly suggesting that maybe she is interested in women? I think she's married to a man, but oh. she could also be interested in women. Well, okay. Aren't we all? Or I just suppose. everybody loves tits. Who knows? Indeed. Uh, I have to say, though, again, and I, I don't say this lightly. This is the worst job you have ever done at sticking to your own theme. Not My a single one. God, sir, you forget early episodes of Master Tweet Theater. <laughs> mask off? How is that mask off for Angela Hill? I bet Suzanne Davis can give us many examples of worse theme adhesion than this one. Well, that may be. This is, this is your worst showing in a long time, let's say that. Well, I have been sick.
Okay, fair enough. Uh, I guess that about does it. What else you got going on? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I just finished an exciting project about the living embodiment of death, who takes the form of a young man and learns about life by journeying to a magical African country that has never been colonized. Is it called Meet Joe Black Panther? It is! And what role do you play? I play the Black Panther's elderly sidekick, the White Widower. (laughs) Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Well, Ben, Nick Newell returned to the cage for the first time in roughly two and a half years this last weekend. He got a first-round face-crank submission over Sonny Luque at an LFA event in Houston, Texas. He's now 14-1, and fighting on the independent circuit, and starting to make noise about wanting to come into the UFC. The only loss is to Justin Gaethje back in World Series of Fighting in July of 2014. Uh, of course... The most notable thing about Nick Newell, or the reason that Nick Newell has made a lot of headlines thus far in his MMA career, is that he was born with only one hand. And Dana White has previously said that he will never fight in the UFC. Where do you come down on this debate so far? Uh, clearly, the record seems like it should be good enough to get into the UFC. Uh, he seems like he has the skills and the athletic background to get into the UFC. Uh, where are you at on whether or not the UFC should change its mind on Nick Newell and invite him into the octagon? You know, at this point, it's really hard to see how you don't at least give him a shot. And I think that's both due to Nick Newell's just continued success over a long term in MMA and also the UFC's kind of abandoning of the idea that there is such a thing as a UFC caliber fighter. Like, I don't think that you can really say anymore if you're the UFC, like, hey, you have to be at this certain level or you have to be able to, like, lay out something. Like, you need this kind of a win at this certain point in the sport in order to be worthy of a UFC contract. Clearly, that's not true anymore. Nick Newell is a popular fighter. A lot of people know him, so he's got that part of it down. If you're worried that he just can't defend himself, clearly he can. You see, his only loss is to Justin Gaethje, and Justin Gaethje's going to beat up a lot of people out there. I don't see how you don't at least give Nick Newell a shot. Yeah, it's, you know, like you said, 14-1 and in today's UFC ought to be plenty good enough to get yourself into the UFC. Uh, He has a pretty robust amateur background just in in amateur wrestling and, and, you know, thus far on the independent circuit, he's been really, really good. He's got a lot of stoppages. I guess if you are going to keep Nick Newell out of the UFC, to me... That raises a weird, like, kind of gray area discussion. Because, like I said in the introduction to the show, you got guys like Michael Bisping, who's basically, uh, blind in one eye, from what we understand, who continues to fight in the UFC. Uh, you've had a, a lot of different people with various physical ailments, uh, you know, including Chael Sonnen at one point going to, uh, a state athletic commission and claiming to have hypogonadism. And you've got, you know, during the testosterone replacement therapy era, you had all these guys with troublingly low testosterone, just like uh, crippling uh, malfeasance of the endocrine system. This endocrine system's not functioning. I think everybody needs to know, since you can't see it at, at home, 
Uh, Chad is doing the thing where he strokes his chin like he is like he's baffled. It's just so if you're going to have a situation where all those guys can fight in the UFC and a guy who can't see out of one eye can fight in the UFC, but you're going to keep a guy who was born with only one hand out of the UFC. A, it seems like you're only doing it for cosmetic reasons, purely cosmetic reasons. B, uh, then we need to have like a really weird discussion about who can fight in the UFC and who can't. Like Brock Lesnar can come back and fight, you know, after he's had his uh, foot of his colon taken out. Right. But you're not going to let Nick Newell because he only has one hand. Well, it also creates a thing where you're saying it doesn't matter what he does. Like if it's if that's the reason why you won't let him in is because he only has one hand, then you're saying to him, it wouldn't matter who you beat. It wouldn't matter what you do. Like you could have somebody, you know, he could go out there and maybe Eddie Alvarez manages to fight out his contract or something. Nick Newell goes and beats Eddie Alvarez in a, uh, a promotion outside the USC, and you're still gonna say, nope. Won't let him do it. It's because of this one thing. And also, like, I don't know exactly where the Americans with Disabilities Act thing would come in here. But if you're saying to somebody, like, hey, because of this one thing, like a a birth defect, essentially, there's no way you could prove to us that you could do this job. Even though you're already doing the same job elsewhere and at, like, a similarly high level, there's just no way. And, like, you've already gone out there. It's already – you've already got the quotes out there where you're saying the reason we're not signing him or the reason we won't consider signing him is because of the one-hand thing. Like, it does seem like you probably get yourself into some tricky legal territory as well. Plus, yeah. I mean, if you're the UFC I, – I kind of ask myself this question, though. Like, you're right that it seems like – Optics is what the UFC is concerned about. Like you don't want to be the place where a one-handed guy comes in there and gets beat up by somebody at a high, you know, a high-level UFC lightweight, and then you're all over Sports Center for the wrong reasons, and people are mad at you. Would it be worse if the say the new ownership was like, yes, we like everything about like Nick Newell seems like he'll bring some some quick easy attention. Let's do that. Right. Like that's the question I was just going to ask you because like if we can read between the lines a little bit of what the UFC is worried about here and like I said earlier, it seems like they're purely worried about cosmetic reasons. And if you think about it for a minute, like it seems like the thing that they are worried about is that they could be accused of like putting on a circus event or some kind of uh like special freak show event. Uh and I don't necessarily think it has to be that way. I don't know one way or the other whether Nick Newell can compete with the with UFC caliber fighters, uh, but people who have much much worse independent records get invited to the UFC these days. And it seems like just knowing the guy that Nick Newell is, he's like he's a pretty good interview. He's a smart guy. He's a thoughtful guy. It seems like it could be the exact opposite where it's not like it looks like you were putting on like a circus sideshow event, but you know, I think Nick Newell is kind of an inspiring story. And I think that he's a guy who can, who can bring that off and in media interviews and stuff like that. So I guess the flip side is like, we know what the UFC is worried about, but is it possible that Nick Newell in fact could be an interesting story, a guy who gets more viewership uh, just because he's been so successful as an MMA fighter, you know, even though he has this disability. Right, well, and the idea to say, like, we'll, we won't give him the chance, uh, we won't find out if he can do it just because we're so concerned that how it might look if he can't do it. I, it's hard for me to really follow that logic. And also, I think once you start, like, if you start thinking about individual matchups for Nick Newell in the UFC, it becomes even more kind of incredulous. Like, does Nick Newell beat CM Punk? He murders CM Punk. Does Nick Newell beat Sage Northcutt? 
Maybe he beats – or give Nick Newell any of the people who Sage Northcutt has fought uh, during his time in the UFC. Does Nick Newell beat those people? Quite possibly. I, I think once you start thinking about it in those terms, then it be, it starts to seem like just a little silly that you're not even going to give him the chance just because of, of this one thing. And, like, you can't at this point pretend that it's not because of that one thing. You've already said it. It's already out there. I, I don't – I think that – Maybe it's – I think a holdover from a, a reactionary part of the MMA promoter and even fan mindset from the past where we were always concerned about how – like MMA being portrayed as being too brutal or uh, like this ridiculous niche sport, guys stripped to the waist in a cage beating each other bloody. And we were really protective of the image and it seemed like the last thing you needed was something that was going to give MMA a bad image. You can understand how – Coming from that old mindset, you'd look at this and say, this is something that could give you a bad image if he goes out there and he gets beat up in a UFC fight and, uh, you know, media outlets jump all over you on Sunday morning. But doesn't it feel like we're a little bit past that? Like that would, that's an old way of thinking that doesn't match up. Like I don't think people would come at it that way. I think if you, if you present it and you're like, all right, Nick Newell's getting his UFC shot and it's like a, you know, Jim Abbott and baseball kind of situation, uh, for MMA, I think people would, jump onto that story and be really interested to see how it would go. And then if he did lose, I don't think people would turn around and say to the UFC, this was disgusting. You guys trying to profit off of this. I, I just, I don't see that reaction. I don't either. And you would hope that this board has moved past that, uh, like view of it, but who knows? Uh, and I think that you would like make a really good comparison with Jim Abbott. Like if you were the UFC, I think that's exactly how you would, you would try to present this. Uh, and we'll just have to wait and see if Dana White changes his mind on Nick Newell and, and if the guy gets his shot in the UFC, I think it's clear that, uh, from an ability standpoint, he deserves it. So I, that, um, so I frankly hope that he does get the opportunity to try to prove that he is a UFC caliber fighter. Let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff? All right. For my just saying stuff, I'm looking at your computer just to make sure that I can see what's on your screen. I'm going to read to you. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm gonna read. Is this, a, this is a pop quiz. You're doing a, a pop quiz. This is a pop quiz. Mm -hmm. I am gonna read to you three different pairings uh, from Saturday's UFC Fight Night 127 from okay. from O2 Arena. Okay, the O2. One of them I made up. You have to okay, guess. So two what, are two are real. One is two are real. Fake. One is fake. So we're playing two truths and a lie, basically. Okay, lay them on me. Danny Roberts versus Oliver Enkamp. Okay. John Phillips versus Charles Bird. Paul okay. Wieserich versus Diego Sharma. Any of those could be fake. I'm going to say the fake one is the second one. John Phillips versus Charles Bird? Yes. That's what you're going with? Yep. That's My actually your featured answer. prelim, my ah! man. The fake one. Does that mean I'm supposed to have heard of either of those people before? Uh, neither one of them has a Wikipedia page. Okay. Wait, is John Phillips the guy who lives in a caravan in, in John Kavanaugh's backyard? Maybe. I don't okay. – there's a guy like that? Yeah, I guess there is, yeah. Yeah. So wait, which was the fake one, the last one? The last one. Paul Wieserick versus Diego Sharma. Just you, made that up. You made that up at the top of your head? Yeah. Compelling. Sounds like a compelling bout. Just saying. Just saying. Ben, this week my Just Saying stuff is about – the Conor McGregor Instagram post for International Women's Day, which we all saw. He writes, Happy International Women's Day, everyone. Get your tits out for the lads, ladies. We love you. Heart emoji. 
then you click on it, of course, and you go to Conor McGregor's Instagram page, and it turns out to be a lengthy burn on 50 Cent, who <laughs> is pictured here on stage with his shirt off. Uh, I'm just saying, are we going to keep saying Conor McGregor is a genius? We're going to keep up with that every time we turn around, Conor McGregor is a genius, because there's a lot of stuff going on over here on social media that may not quite live up to genius levels. I'm just saying. Just saying. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to think about all the stuff that happens at UFC London and look ahead to whatever happens after that. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So remember, like, whatever, like, a million years ago when we were talking about starting this podcast? No, I frankly don't recall any of, any of that. We were like, yeah, time. we'll just sit around your table chopping it up, talking about MMA. It'll be fun and easy. Did you ever think that when we first hit on that idea it would lead you sitting here one day and saying the words lengthy burn on 50 cent this journey has taken a lot of surprise turns my friend yeah taking a lot of uh detours along the way here we are 297 episodes in still wondering if michael this fight a baby i looked it up uh they're born about it